Before we get started this week, we wanted to tell you about another podcast. Clockworks is a weekly podcast about the FX TV series Legion. Much like American Gods, Legion is a surreal, psychedelic fantasy series with a ton of production detail and symbolism under the surface. It's hard to catch it all if you're watching it casually on your own. The hosts of Clockworks, Paul and Jan Moffat, come from the same online community of narrative geeks that we do, and delve into an episode-by-episode analysis of the show, focusing especially on picking apart the symbolism and imagery. Search for Clockworks in your favorite podcatcher, or check the show notes for links. And now on with the show. AKA Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of Wednesday. Everyone looks at Lady Liberty and sees a different face, even if it crumbles under questioning. People will defend the warm, safe feeling their America gives them. Now you may be seated. This week, we watched American Gods, Episode 6, A Murder of Gods. What did you think, Alan? I really like the departure from the plot of the book that we get here. Uh, This is a cool idea. And what I really appreciate about this episode, in light of that, is the ability that the writers have to maintain the integrity and the tone of the show so far. So I think if you had never read the book, you would never know that this isn't a thing. I think there are a couple of problems and we'll dig into it, but overall it's really impressive how they were able to come up with a whole new god and town. What did you think? After my second watch through this episode, this is definitely my favorite one so far. In particular, I love how cohesive this episode is thematically and how it's really taking advantage of the TV episode as a narrative unit. So aside from episode four, Get Gone, which is the lore episode, the show has had a very novelistic kind of Game of Thronesy feel where basically cool shit happens for 55 minutes, (laughs) but you have to reach a little bit to say what the episode is about rather than like the show as a whole. And so I think this episode went beyond the usual fantastic scene level work that we're used to. It really struck a fantastic balance between long form and short form storytelling. But before we dig in, let's go over this week's creators and do a little addendum about last week's episode. So just to pull back the curtain here a little bit, we've been watching the advanced screeners that Stars puts out for... Important media people. <laughs> yeah, like important us. media people, uh, creators. <laughs> Things are filling in the blank there. And so we haven't had the actual credits to go off of until very recently. And so we'd been going off of basically, I think, Wikipedia, right? Uh, like IMDb, IMDb and some, yeah. some other stuff. Yeah. Addendum to last week. Last week's episode was written by David Graziano. He is a producer on the show and has also written for the TV shows Lie to Me and Las Vegas. So this episode was directed by Adam Kane. He's directed for Heroes and Hannibal. Seamus Kevin Fahey wrote the teleplay for this episode. He's also written for Battlestar Galactica and Wayward Pines. And let's take a moment to recap what happened this week. A Mexican coyote smuggles a group of people across the Rio Grande. One of them nearly drowns, but is saved by a man who can walk on water. After they cross, a vigilante militia attacks, killing Jesus and his fellow immigrants. At the Starlight Motel, Shadow and Wednesday retrieve their car and leave. Laura tries to stop them, but Wednesday manages to drive away without Shadow noticing her. Laura finds Mad Sweeney and agrees to travel with him instead. They try to steal Salim's car, and Sweeney convinces him that they should all travel together. Laura forms a bond with Salim, and after Sweeney falls asleep, steers the group back to her hometown. Shadow and Wednesday arrive in Vulcan, West Virginia, and meet the god of the self-same name. 
Mr. Wednesday convinces him to join the old gods and forge him a sword. Laura returns to her mother's home, but realizes she can never be a part of that family now that she is dead. Vulcan betrays Shadow and Wednesday, so Wednesday uses his sword to sacrifice the god to his cause. In the morning, Selim prays, and Laura leaves behind her past. So I think it's super telling that this week, both of us want to talk about the prologue and how it relates to the rest of the episode. The prologue this week was not only fabulous, but it had a lot more thematic resonance with the Shadow Wednesday plot than the prologues normally do. Mm, Yeah. It also tracks along with what you were saying last week about the prologues, that this is modern day, and so we get absolutely no voiceover from Ibis, even though we do get the uh, calligraphy when it opens up. But these people tell their own story. I think this proves that you are right. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, so this week I was interested in looking at the prologue and kind of trying to contrast it with Vulcan regarding both the ideas of sacrifice and how guns are used. So our narrative guru, Lonnie Diane Rich, loves to talk about guns as being unearned power. And in our collectively favorite TV show, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, guns are very rarely used and when they are used it's used in like a very intentional way as a symbol of unearned power and i think it's interesting that there basically haven't been guns it used in american gods so far there's been a ton of violence but it's all been like very personal up close fighting Mm -hmm. and this episode is just full of guns oh yeah to finish And one of the things that I didn't notice on the first time through that I really loved on the second time through is that you can see the Minutemen are using Vulcan bullets when Mm -hmm. um, it really slows down. You can actually read the text. So I guess I'm curious to what extent you think that the show is making a statement about guns and unearned power. At the end, Wednesday is talking to Vulcan And he's saying that he wouldn't want to use any machine-made arms. He wants something handmade, even though Vulcan says, you can cut throats every day from now until your grandchildren die, and you won't spill half the blood a gun could in a day. I mean, I guess, (laughs) sort of coming into it with the perspective I have, I want to say that there's something about unearned power there. Um, But maybe it's more just of sort of a quality versus quantity of blood argument. I don't know. Yeah, because it might matter the way that they die. I think an important thing with the guns in this episode is Vulcan says that every gun is like a volcano in your hand. And that is the beginning of Vulcan's power. Like when you go back in the mythology, the idea is that people would sacrifice to Vulcan by throwing something into an active volcano or into a large bonfire that represented a volcano, you know, a living creature or a person. And they show the guns looking like volcanoes a bunch of times. It's like you when you shoot somebody with the gun, you're killing them with a volcano, which serves him. And it might not serve Wednesday the same way that, say, hanging somebody or killing them in the ritual way that has to do with his specific religion would empower him. So it really might be a quality versus quantity thing. Yeah, or I guess just that coming from the culture that he does come from, like the Vikings, he needs his victims to be sacrificed in a way that is keeping with Viking tradition in some way, I guess. Mm -hmm. And also glory is such an important part of their culture. It's really cowardly to shoot somebody with a gun from a distance, right? There's no glory in that compared to like meeting your enemy face to face. You know, you're both armed with swords and you're going at it. That's a glorious victory compared to the way that the immigrants are gunned down, you know, a bunch of unarmed immigrants at a border, that's a cowardly act, and there's no glory in it. Yeah, and I guess in that sense, it does kind of come back to the idea of unearned power, even if maybe Brian Fuller and Michael Green wouldn't use that specific phrase to describe it. Yeah, I don't know 
it's that's one of the things as much as i love lonnie with my whole heart it's always been one of the things that i kind of don't agree with her on we might we'll probably get into the second amendment in in our talk here i don't see how we're gonna avoid it i probably politically don't line up with her and maybe not with you on that issue although i'm pretty like anti-violence in general i don't think that a gun is very different from any other kind of weapon and it's I don't know. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know where I'm from. I grew up with guns all the time. I was like, you know, in summer camp as like a third grader or whatever, that was like rifle class was mandatory. Mm-hmm. And you I know, was on the rifle kids. team in high school. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, you know, this is another one of those things. Like last week we had Laura and Sweeney and you're like, how did this not happen in the book? How does this not come up in the book? As important as guns are to American culture, how did that never make it into the book? Because there is a part in the book where they talk about guns and there's they, you know, they say kind of what you were saying earlier, like swords versus guns. This is not a fight. You know, this is the the power differential is huge here, but that's really all they say. And I really appreciate how this episode is grappling with the gun culture in America and the way that it relates to the other issues that the show has been bringing up from the beginning. Yeah. And I guess it's particularly interesting that guns didn't really make it into the book since so much of the book is basically just Neil Gaiman's response to driving around America as kind of a stranger in a strange land. Mm -hmm. And that the way that guns are treated in American and British culture is so different. Like the police in Britain don't even carry guns. Yeah. So the quote that you had at the beginning really struck me the second time that I watched the episode about the warm, safe feeling of America which kind of stands in contrast to the actual idea or the myth of America, you know, like kind of give us your huddled masses, your poor and your weak and all that, and how everybody is welcome, how everybody is equal under the law. That is not necessarily what the feeling of America is, where you want to feel that comfort of privilege that these people in this town really seem to treasure. And they are defending it with the bullets of their guns. And Vulcan talks about like how there's a cycle of fear. Like if something happens, then people want to buy more guns and they want to, you know, it's this idea of like stand your ground and things like that, that are going on in our culture right now, where you're afraid that somebody else is armed, a criminal is armed, and therefore you buy a gun, and now there's even more chance of someone getting shot and killed because everybody's armed up. And it's really good for him. He says, I never needed my religion to be moral. And it it just like grates against the idea of America to me, but it totally fits that safe feeling. I just, I loved that. And obviously you noticed it because that was the quote you pulled. What did you think about that stuff? Yeah, I thought it was really powerful. I thought its perspective was really interesting in that it's kind of calling out the left and the right equally, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's very morally relativistic. It says everyone looks at Lady Liberty and sees a different face. People will defend the warm, safe feeling their America gives them, you know, and it can be interpreted as arguing the sort of like insular fear of immigrants and outsider celebration of bullets and violence version of America is no more or less real than the vision of America as give me your huddled masses, your poor and downtrodden, you know, like Mm -hmm. both of those visions of America kind of exist only in our own minds and are only as powerful or as important as we can convince other people to buy into them and live accordingly and like make our policies conform to them. Yes. You know, I which is like a very 2017 way of looking at the world, I think. Alternative facts and everything. Mhm. Yeah, and well, that's always been there to a degree. There's always been a push and a pull in our country. From the very beginning, uh, not just on this issue, but but on what America is. 
I mean, what, you know, like some of the first legislation ever passed was about keeping immigrants out. Yeah, what you're saying, like, I, I just sit here and say yes, but I'm like, in my heart, I'm like, this is what this whole story is about, I think, is what you're saying, that America is an idea and that it's only as real as our actions make it. That That is literally what American Gods is, in my opinion. So I think it's really interesting, too, how they emphasized the religious motivation of the vigilante Minutemen at the border. The, like, engravings on the guns and the crucifix in the hand as they were shooting the immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess just as a statement that in the same way that people can defend basically any image of America that they come up with, people can latch on to any image of a god and begin following that even if it's pretty different than the source material. It's kind of what Wednesday said in Head Full of Snow, where he was saying there's a lot of Jesuses because there's a lot of need for Jesus. So you would think that like the American white Jesus that they're invoking is would be like a different personality than this other Jesus that we get to see in the prologue. Yeah. Like maybe he's not so meek and mild. Maybe he's fierier, you know, and would have like maybe a different personality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's worth pointing out the irony of the fact that if you gloss over the existence of multiple Jesuses, the Minutemen think they're worshiping Jesus when they're actually murdering him and inadvertently worshiping Vulcan instead. Oh, that's that's really smart. I also think it's really interesting the sort of contrast between the sort of like violent franchise white nationalist Christianity in the prologue and then the very last scene that we get in the episode is Salim doing his very peaceful Islamic prayer Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like uh yeah a contrast that's very poignant in the current political climate I like that I hadn't I hadn't really thought of that but that is how we open is with that really violent and, and it conflates religion with violence in a weird way yeah, you're right. And then at the end, it's about peace and change. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And a new day dawning. Yeah, as opposed to the more violent portrayal of Islam that we get from the right wing media. Yeah, yeah, that it's in. And, and that's the thing, right? Like these guys, they're not part of, you know, like ice or something like that. These are clearly like just people with guns who are going down to the border and shooting. So in a way, they're, they have been radicalized by some kind of ideology that, you know, that is also clearly religious, and they're going down there and killing people in the name of their country, in the name of their God. And to contrast that with Salim at the end is definitely a statement that the show is making. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that at all, but you're totally right. I really like that. Yeah. Do you think Jesus is dead? So... I was trying to think about that, and one of the ideas that I had was that part of Jesus's mythology, right, is that he's killed and then resurrected, and it's hard to know where the show is going to go with this because Jesus doesn't really appear in the book, at least the the main text of the book, Mm -hmm. but what if Jesus actually gets his power from being killed and being sacrificed as opposed to all of the other gods who seem to be gaining power by sacrificing and killing others? (laughs) That's cool. I like that. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to know any of the proper names for this. You'll have to help Mm -hmm. me out. But like in some mythology where you like cut off a head and then two more grow up some sort of like snaky thing oh like a a hydra yeah there we go yeah so it's basically jesus is invincible and by trying to kill him you only end up making him more powerful (laughs) oh my god i can't believe i just compared jesus to hydra (laughs) (laughs) jesus is uh he's he's like some bread dough you have to leave him sit for three days and then he rises it's an interesting idea because like he's playing out the primary story of his mythology. Like you say, it seems to me like he's trying to defend those people. Like everybody is panicking and he's the only one who keeps his head. Yeah. And as far as thematic resonance goes, you have Jesus who's like big shtick is resurrection. And then that gets referenced later on when Sweeney's talking to Laura 
about trying to get her mojoed up. Now that you say that, he says that you are like Jesus. You need someone to resurrect you. And so maybe he can't do it on his own. Like maybe he needs help. Oh, yeah, that was how I interpreted it for sure. He's Mm -hmm. he's trying to take her somewhere. Do you think he's trying to take her to Jesus? Maybe. I mean, if Jesus was resurrected by God the Father, but is also one with God the Father, he should have the power to resurrect her. Yeah, that's tricky, right? Like that gets back into the whole, if there's any kind of monotheistic God, he's like, he wrecks the story. It is a little bit problematic to have Jesus in here because the Jesus story is such a different story. It kind of stands apart in a lot of mythology because he is killed and resurrected. And it's like a very unique story that sets him apart from the other gods. But I almost like that. I like that it is a little bit problematic and different. You know, if you look at a lot of religions, and maybe not specifically this god or that god, but in general there is a really big emphasis on cycles in religions where things will rise in power and then they'll wane in power. And like even the idea, like we've talked a lot about Ragnarok, but something that I've never really brought up is that when Ragnarok happens, the universe is destroyed and all the gods are killed. But then after that happens, a new world tree and a new universe starts over again. So it's like a cycle. And so the Jesus, you know, coming to earth and then being killed and being resurrected kind of aligns with that cycle. But I think it's still very different in the sense that... Oh, definitely. Yeah. completely anti-violent in the way that all of the other gods that we see in the text are super violent. Yeah. And I really appreciated that there wasn't anything about him that was magically striking people down or being wrathful, that he just put his hands up like stop, and then he was gunned down. I thought they did a really good job. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you say, honoring what that religion is really about. And it, it does like underline that contrast of what the militia guys are doing. Yeah, because it's not the contrast between like violent Christianity, air quotes, and like peaceful Islam is not saying Christianity and Islam are opposed in this way, but that they can be opposed in this way and that Christianity has so many different versions and facets and ways it can be interpreted. Yeah, so the way that I saw the episode where we're talking about the prologue is I felt like they're is kind of a repetition built into the structure of the episode that, and you were saying this earlier in your uh, summary that the prologue has way more resonance this time than it ever has, I think with any episode. So I saw it as kind of a three beat in a way that I've never really seen a story be it a three beat exactly. And maybe we should talk about what a three beat is. A three beat is a storytelling device that helps you to make a point, either dramatically or comedically. And so the three beats are that you establish an idea, then you reinforce or restate that idea the second time. And then the third time, you undercut it or kind of invert it in some way. And either that can have like a comedic effect or a dramatic effect. And so that's kind of how I saw this episode where the first beat is the prologue where these immigrants are crossing the river to get to America, which presumably would be a better place for them, right? They're going to a place of safety. But actually, this place is a trap because the militia guys are coming to get them. The second beat in this would be everything that happens with Laura, where she goes back to Indiana. And that seems like a place of safety. It's her home. It's her hometown where she grew up. All of her family is there. But in reality, this is kind of an emotional trap, uh, a place that she doesn't belong anymore. And it's a bad decision. And then the third one inverts it or reverses this idea where Shadow and Wednesday go to Vulcan And that place is also a trap for the new gods have set them up to be captured. But actually, the real trap is Mr. Wednesday has gone there specifically to get a weapon and to kill Vulcan to increase his own power. And I think that Wednesday knows before he even goes down there that Vulcan is on the other team. 
and that this whole thing is a con to draw Vulcan in. That's so interesting. I was asking myself at what point Wednesday realized that Vulcan wasn't on his side, but it never occurred to me that maybe he knew from the beginning. Yeah, I think he always knew. And that going down there is the actual trap. And so it's a complete reversal in the way that the 3-beat works, where you're not actually moving into the trap. The trap is being set by Wednesday arriving. Ooh, I like that. See, because at the end when... When Shadow is complaining about all of the mm-hmm, racial mm-hmm. antagonization that Vulcan is doing and is like, seriously, what the fuck Wednesday? Like, <laughs> you're going to let this guy do this to us? Like, I thought we were a team. And he holds up the the bottle of mead. Oh, that's um Soma. What is Soma? Okay, so Soma, this appears in the book, but also Soma is from the Aldous Huxley book, A Brave New World. And it's like a a pacifying drink, you know, it like zonks you out or whatever. Oh, I see. Um, or I think it's a pill. But anyway, in the book, Soma is concentrated human worship. Oh. So this is probably what is allowing Wednesday to remain alive at all. Okay. Okay. I guess I assumed it was Mead just because Mead was what he and shadow used to like seal their deal yeah but i guess it doesn't have to be me just like any sort of ritual drink that you share but yeah Yeah. so i definitely saw that as like a symbol the fact that vulcan didn't drink the soma was was oh really refusing the alliance i didn't even notice Um, that you're right he gets them the drinks oh yeah i didn't even notice that but yeah you're right he so yeah when Wednesday is explaining to Shadow, like, fuck this guy, he insulted me long before, and he's, like, holding the unopened bottle and, like, really waving it around in the lower left corner of the mm-hmm. screen. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Wednesday never actually takes the drink. Like, he kind of lifts the glass, like he's going to do it, and then he sets it down. I did notice that that happened. Okay, so yeah, that totally makes sense. So they're both, like, kind of dancing around each other. But yeah. on the second... On the second viewing is when I, I was really watching Wednesday, and I was like, when does he know? And I think he knew right from the jump. Because even if he doesn't know the specific terms, like Vulcan's whole situation is just too sweet for it to be something that he did himself. And I think this is clearly like the deal that the new gods offered Odin in the last episode is what Vulcan is in on now. Like he has a factory in his name, like the company is in his name, Vulcan bullets, Vulcan guns. And it's set up around his mythology. Like the factory is in the shape of a volcano. Like when they're walking away from it and all the smoke is coming out in the parade, when they first get into town, it clearly like looks like a volcano and the people are falling into the lava. So like this has all been set up by the new gods specifically to feed Vulcan and he like sold out. Oh, I love that so much. This yeah, it's basically just like the version of the Odin missile satellite blah 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 that they were offering him before. Yep. This is the Vulcan version of that. And I, I looked this up. There is a Vulcan West Virginia, so I don't know how the people in that town feel about this episode. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I would be happy if my town showed up like this. <laughs> Well, although actually, so this whole plot line is comes from Neil Gaiman, even though it wasn't in the book originally. And it's based on a real place that he visited in Alabama. It wasn't a bullets or firearms factory, but there was a real factory where there had been a string of deaths of the workers and they had done the actuarial analysis and realized that it would be cheaper to pay the families of each dead guy like you know a couple million dollars than to shut down the factory long enough to make the improvements Ugh, so, so that is based on real life but That's not awful. in west virginia it's in yeah alabama it's so disgusting late stage capitalism actually maybe early stage capitalism that sounds like we basically regressed back to to the point where we're just like sending in children because they can reach <laughs> some carpetbagger bullshit right yeah. there yeah that's real bad that's one of those things where real life is weirder than any book because at least in this story like he needs this to happen or he'll die like what you're describing is just completely gross yeah it's just it's all about money. money 
So, is there anything else interesting about Vulcan to share, or is he he's just a volcano god? Oh, when I was watching the episode, I I got so excited. So the way that um, the actor Corbin Bernston plays him, he's like limping the whole time, and I was like, oh, that is so cool because like Vulcan's whole story is that he is born deformed and his mom jupiter's wife so she's like the head honcho of all the gods sees his deformed body and and is like yuck i don't love you and throws him out of heaven down to earth and when he lands it shatters his leg so for him to let walk around with that limp i was like what a cool detail like i just (laughs) loved it as soon as i saw it no, but that definitely seems like the kind of thing that when they were doing their research, they were like, yeah, we'll just throw that up. I love that they never said it. Like, it wasn't a part of the plot. Like, he didn't have to run away from Wednesday and his limp, like, messes him up. You know, and then Wednesday yeah. would, like, explain to Shadow, like, his mother did that to him. And I knew about it. It was part of my plan. Like, I think a lesser show would have done that and been like, we did our research. See, we're going to show you that we did our research. They just very quietly folded that detail in and I was like that's so cool but the cool thing about him is that he's kind of tricky like he is constantly inventing all these contraptions that like take the other gods down a peg and he walks out of the situation ahead so he's very tricky and I think the episode kind of maintains the integrity of uh of his character from the mythology yeah so the factory really is his style I guess Mm mm-hmm Like, how did he get here, though? That really bothers me. Like, from a world-building kind of standard, like, that means that someone from Roman times had to cross the ocean, which, I mean, whatever, you know, like, we had Egyptian people do it for Jacqueline Ibis, but but then, like, sacrifice to a volcano to make him appear? Like, it's weird. That, you know, that never occurred to me, but you're totally right. Maybe... headcanon there's like some weirdo roman cult in the italian diaspora <laughs> like in new york and they're throwing yeah they're throwing people <laughs> into like the some... 1910s or something <laughs> yeah maybe we'll get some kind of coming to america and he'll show up again in the second season or something i don't think he's coming back this season yeah somehow i don't think we'll see him again either but i <laughs> did appreciate what we got from him yeah do you think that he could come back because he like melted into the lava and well, like went into okay, the bullets? Okay, so actually that was a question I had at the end when Wednesday is peeing into the molten metal pit and says that he's like laying a curse. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what the purpose of that was. Is he like making it so Vulcan can't be resurrected or something? Oh, that's pretty smart. Yeah, because I don't. I don't have an answer. <laughs> Is he spoiling that batch of bullets so they won't be like prayers to give him the strength to be resurrected? Uh, not. Yeah. And you know, the whole town may just fold under now that he's gone because like when he's peeing in the lava whatever i'm like man wednesday is a fucked up dude like that he's doing that to make sure that he can't come back that actually makes a lot of sense and when they come into the town it's playing that song i put a spell on you and like Mm -hmm. all the people are super into everything that he says and he's like okay now you can all leave they seem very drone-like in a way. Yeah. How excited everybody is to be at work, like when they're playing the Partridge family song in the factory, um, is like also not natural. Like people are not that stoked to be at work ever. Especially when it's probably like 95 degrees in that building. And super unsafe where people die all the time. Nobody would be that happy to be there. So I felt like the whole town is kind of orbiting him. He's so powerful. And so maybe now that he's removed, that might be the last batch of bullets that's ever made. I'm not sure if I'm convinced, even though that was my idea that I brought up. But it was... (laughs) I don't really have a good answer. (laughs) I'm I'm still skeptical. Of your own idea. (laughs) Of my own idea. Yeah. Perfect. Just throwing it out there to see if it sticks. One idea that I did really like, though, was a tweet from Becca Eller and we're not going to do a full feedback section on this episode because I think it's going to be pretty long anyway but this I thought was 
super relevant since we're talking about Vulcan as a traitor uh, going from the old gods to the new gods. Becca Eller said about the previous episode, I just realized that media is a traitor. She used to work with the old gods and she left them. At one time, she was the one telling people about the old gods. She is media and there were centuries of plays, songs, and books about them. I am gutted. She turned her back on all those people to join the other side. I can't unsee this. (laughs) So I guess that she liked media before she thought that she was a traitor. Like she's gutted is is kind of I I love you Becca but it's kind of funny that <laughs> that you were cool with her until she was a traitor. I wonder like what icons she would have inhabited in the pre-modern age like if she's not Lucy or Bowie or Marilyn Monroe. Maybe like somebody like Homer or something like yeah. that she would be like the bard you know like in a or the cassandra or something like that in a in a larger sense juliet instead of oh yeah like an actual character yeah, yeah that kind yeah, of makes sense. i mean because if you think about it the people she's inhabiting are the personas not the storytellers that's true yeah because he says lucille ball and she says no i'm lucy ricardo yeah so you're right yeah it's an interesting idea i'm a little bit skeptical or i should say i'm don't think it's intended that way but if that's how you want to interpret it and you can make it work more power to you yeah this might be a smarter idea than the writers have like i don't think this has occurred to the writers (laughs) you know yeah i think it could be there but i don't know that it is there i think they see media more as like a modern phenomenon and aren't thinking about it as broadly or generally but it is a super cool idea but i guess maybe Modern media is different in the sense that it's being used to sell something in a way that older media isn't. Like, modern TV is basically just a vehicle for ads of things that are not actually related to the TV show itself, just like other products. Bowie and Marilyn Monroe were mostly after direct record and ticket sales in a way that's more akin to traditional playwrights and musicians you know this actually it puts me into mind of something though that the episode made me think of because what becca is doing here i think is a very modern idea of kind of compartmentalizing different aspects of our culture so like you will you kind of think of yourself in different ways right like you'll think of okay i'm going to work now so now i'm in my work mode Now I'm coming home. Now I'm, you know, the husband or wife or son or daughter, whatever the case may be. And then you go to church on the weekend and now you're in church mode. That's not how it was for ancient people. And she's kind of separating out here the idea of the medium of transmission of the stories and the religion, kind of disentangling them in a way that a modern person would think of it. And it occurred to me when I watched the episode that the town of Vulcan is very ancient in in its social structure, in like its kind of culture. Like the whole town revolves around that factory, which is itself a temple to Vulcan, but it's also the workplace and it's also the center of the religion. And that's how ancient cultures operated, where the government, the religion, and the work were all the same thing. It was a vertically aligned society and not compartmentalized in the way that modern people live their lives. Huh. So that it's it's kind of interesting that, you know, that she's applying this way of thinking to the story because I don't think that the way that Neil Gaiman set it up, he wasn't thinking of it in those terms. He's like thinking new gods and old gods, but she's kind of disentangling these things along the timeline in a way that I think is pretty cool. And I think that the way that this episode is set up kind of works with in an interesting way too. Yeah. Another thing that I thought about when I was watching this episode, because we get logos all over the place, especially in the factory. Wait, I have a question. Yeah. Um, I just want to interrupt you for a second. What did you think of the Vulcan logo? Because my first thought was, oh, that's so cute. I want that on a t-shirt. And then I was like, no, wait a second. It looks like a rat face. It has like <laughs> like the triangle rat face and then like little whiskers coming out at the bottom. <laughs> I mean, I still want it on a t-shirt and think it's cute, but in a different way. (laughs) 
I hadn't thought about that. Um, when I saw it, what I saw was an upside down volcano. That's what I thought of it. But it, and also the letter V, obviously. Right. I thought that was really smart. I I like that logo a lot. Yeah, and we see it on all the on all the boxes and stuff. And it made me think of like the Nike swoosh and how in our culture, you know, like Nike is a Greek word. Oh, yeah. It's a goddess, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Nike is the Greek goddess of victory. Yeah. So Nike is kind of appropriated from that Greek story. And then you get all kinds of uh, mythological gods and stuff, you know, like you can buy like a Saturn car or a Mercury car. And this was kind of the same thing where you can buy like a Vulcan gun, or you can buy, you know, Vulcan bullets. And I was like, Oh, yeah, that totally fits. That's how we run our society. That's how we market things is with these old gods. They're just logos now. Something in the episode that I can't quite get my head around is Wednesday's reaction to Laura. Clearly the Ravens are like on the watch for her and he's like telling Shadow, get in the car, get in the car. And Shadow wants to find her. What is going on? Like, why does he care? You know, I don't know if I have a good answer for that, but I also found it a little bit confusing, especially since Laura was the one who saved Shadow from the technical boy. Mm -hmm. So it seems superficially, at least, like all of their goals are aligned and all of their allegiances should be aligned. But yeah, clearly Wednesday doesn't want Laura in the picture. And I'm not entirely sure why. I I honestly assumed that you would have a better idea than I would because you (laughs) have actually finished the book recently and I have not. I mean, I'm assuming it maybe has something to do with her endgame and the whole plot, but I don't know what that is, so. Well, who? Kn- I mean, she's so different. It's not going to be like the book. But so, like, one way to read this, right, is Sweeney tells her in the last episode that Wednesday set up the confrontation between Sweeney and Shadow in the bar to see what Shadow was made of. So he needs to get in the fight with him. So you could imagine that maybe Wednesday wanted Shadow to get that coin from Sweeney. Wednesday is just such a good manipulator that I just assumed there was more of a plan here. And he, things seem to be getting out of his control in a way that is confusing to me. I, I like that they're letting us know that Laura is not part of the deal for him, but I also don't understand why he's not willing to kind of improvise and somehow fold her into the plan. It, it seems yeah. out of character. Yeah. Well, and while we're on the topic of puzzling things about Laura, they made such a big deal in the last episode about her not being able to taste or feel the nicotine rash when she's smoking yeah and then she's constantly smoking in this episode and so she's like what is she, why is she doing that is she trying to cover up her own smell of being dead or something i don't know it seems mm. less self-conscious and more like she's actually getting something out of it but i don't know what that would be it seems less habitual and compulsive and more like she's consciously trying to get something out of it is it just that she's an asshole and smoking is how we signal to modern audiences that someone's an asshole? <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's funny. I don't think you need more signals about how much of an asshole Laura is. Yeah. She's a pretty big asshole. <laughs> Which we have to talk about fuck those assholes in a little bit. But but let's put the assholes to the side for a second. And... Um, yeah, so the cigarettes. Yeah, that makes sense that she's covering up uh, her smell. That's the only thing I could think of. Yeah. she, You know, she really puts up like a front in this episode in a big way. And maybe that's just part of her whole bluff demeanor. It seems like everything she says, she doesn't actually mean or she means like the opposite. Yeah, that was actually something I was thinking about. My first time through the episode, I was really confused about why she even went back to Indiana when she was trash talking her mom so much earlier in the episode. Mm -hmm. And then on the second time through, I think I realized that maybe they were trying to show how much her blustery demeanor is just an act and she's putting up this front of being an asshole and not caring about anything and being totally unconnected, but she is a little bit more complicated than that. Right. And and more conflicted. It's like a coping mechanism to like keep everything at an arm's length, but really she does care. 
She yeah. cares. That's all she cares about. And maybe now, you know, now that we're talking about this and and I'm thinking about it a little bit more, it also could be the same thing as her loving Shadow now. Like when she died and came back, it might have fixed some kind of emotional imbalance in her. And maybe she's just not capable of coping with all these new emotions where she used to just be kind of numb and uh, in like a clinical depression kind of way. And now she like fully feels everything, but doesn't have any of the normal psychological coping mechanisms that everybody else has, you know, because they don't have this kind of clinical depression. And this is how she's coping with it is by smoking, by lying, you know, by creating like a bubble around herself. Yeah. Huh. I don't know, though. The other Laura scene that I really liked was when they're back in the crocodile bar and she's reliving the kiss that she had with Shadow while in conversation with Mad Sweeney. Mm -hmm. And I love that now we're kind of getting the kiss from Shadow's perspective through Sweeney's speculation. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's somewhat familiar with at least this part of the book, I like how it fits in more with the book's description of that kiss. Mm -hmm. Where So in the book, we get it from Shadow's point of view, and he does talk about how her tongue is cold and clammy and how it is not this transcendent, amazing experience as Laura experienced it in the TV show. It's, like Mad Sweeney says, totally a reminder that she is dead and, like, puts to end any fantasies that he might have about going back to the way things were. I love putting that in there as kind of a nod to the book. Last episode, you know, I almost put the kiss as my disappointment Mm -hmm. in the adaptation because I thought the book description was so powerful. Ultimately, I didn't end up choosing it because I also liked the TV version of it, but I like how they added it back in here. So we actually get both perspectives on the kiss and see how they're so different from each other. Yeah, I really like that. You know, and that whole scene also shows you that she's still only thinking of herself. She wasn't really thinking about what the whole thing was like for Shadow. And it it was what you were saying in the last episode that she needed to seduce him metaphorically and not physically like that was the wrong move and she it didn't even occur to her she's still processing what it means to be dead like she i don't think she's completely accepted her circumstances yet and that that's a part of it where she's like oh right yeah i'm gross okay (laughs) and and that's the whole thing too of like she talks about shame like i'm not ashamed of it but that's clearly like what we were talking about earlier where it's a front she is not happy about her situation yeah no i definitely agree with that yeah so speaking of this connection between shadow and laura we get a new power that shadow seems to be capable of where he can remotely see what's happening with laura his eyeballs lit up kind of like the gin or something or really it kind of lit up the way that laura sees him and like the same kind of light that was in her chest during the kiss last time seemed to be in his eyeballs yeah yeah what did you think about this like did you do you think that like wednesday's doing something to him or is this something shadow can do i mean i think he and laura definitely have some sort of mystical connection it is weird that wednesday seems to intuit that this connection exists while at the same time not wanting shadow and laura to actually be reunited yeah so i'm not actually sure what to do with that i think at this point i kind of just want to wait and see what happens with it Mm mm-hmm It did make me think of the thing that I made fun of in the premiere where he sees his wife in the ceiling and then he kind of rolls over and is like, eh, whatever. But maybe he really was seeing her in some way. Perhaps this is an ability that he's always had, but just thought that it was a fantasy or a dream. Or maybe that was like foreshadowing this ability in some way. I don't know. I think I buy foreshadowing more than the ability preceding her death. Yeah, I think it's connected to the coin somehow, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they both have the coin. And the coin seems to be like associated with the sun and there's this light. So it's probably tied up in that. But it did make me think of the wife and the ceiling thing. And it makes me feel a tiny bit better. 
about that, but not not much. It's not moving the needle very far. Why is she so in that scene? He sees her like going to the window and seeing her family and stuff. How did you think that all played out? Were you like moved by this? Did you feel bad for her or? Yeah, I I had some sympathy for her. I mean, she's having to really let go of her life and her identity as a living person and fully embrace her deadness. I mean, it's very different than the book lore that we get, Mm -hmm. who's immediately just super different and more detached and unemotional in almost a like robotic and inhuman way. It's kind of the opposite. Yeah, TV lore is much more uh, human and connected still, even though she's dead. And I, I like that choice. The whole thing made me more curious about her backstory. I feel like there's something there that they're building because we see like they're all gathered around the table Like, why doesn't she live in this house? Why is she living in her grandmother's house instead of... Because it's in the same town. And and they seem to be like a happy family together. And she talks earlier about like, I would pray in Sunday school, you know, that they would like go away or I would have a different family. Like she's very disconnected from an early time from her family. And like, where is the dad? Like, did he die? And it's somehow connected or was there a divorce and he left or did she does she not know who her father is or like there's it brought up a lot of questions for me. And I feel like they're building something that maybe will pay off later. Like we'll find more about her uh, backstory somehow or something. I don't know. Hmm. Okay, so I've got some big problems with Shadow in this episode. I feel like this has been building to a point where I'm becoming less and less tolerant of it, even though I haven't really been bringing it up on the show. Like Shadow is just not buying into the premise of the show in a way that like every scene he is having a big emotional reaction like, this is crazy. Can you believe it? I'd be like, come on, man. You know, like Laura finds out from Sweeney. She's like, what are you talking about? And it says, well, a god told me to fight your husband. And then he like backs away from her and he says, yeah, I can see you don't believe me. And she's like, no, I'm just processing. Okay. Who is this God? So immediately like she's in and we can just tell the story. And I'm much more comfortable in the Sweeney Laura story than I am in the Shadow Wednesday story because it's just constantly this thing with Shadow where he's like, I I can't believe it. And I know that that's like part of the story, his belief, but man, like it is getting to be grating. No, I definitely agree. And especially because I feel like we keep getting false promises that he's like turned the corner. Mm-hmm. Like Shadow and Wednesday will have a conversation and Wednesday will say something and Shadow will be like, oh yeah, okay. Like I did make that snowstorm with my brain. Right. And and then the next episode, it's like back to square one. And yeah. that is kind of frustrating. On the one hand, it means that we keep getting to hear Wednesday's delightful dialogue where he's like re-explaining <laughs> the Tinkerball hypothesis over and over again. Um, right. <laughs> the one from this episode I thought was really good. He says, people believe things, which means they're real, which means we know they exist. What came first, gods or the people who believe in them? But I don't know if I'm willing to pay the price to get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As great as Ian McShane's delivery is, it's yeah, we don't need the premise of the show every episode. Like, this is a serialized TV show. We, we get it. We're in. Yeah, it's prestige cable. Like, you can trust us. Yeah. This, you know, this episode has some interesting implications for that Tinkerbell hypothesis. We talked about this a little bit last time. What do you think, in terms of the town of Vulcan, how that works? Who's oh. responsible there? So, I think it's more complicated here, because last time I was kind of positing that perhaps the people who believe in the gods are a little bit more responsible for the gods' action than maybe the god themselves. Because if you imagine, like, let's say Chernabog, you have created this dark god of death and evil. Like, what is he supposed to do except be an evil asshole? Like, that's his whole job. That's his deal. So you can't really blame him for doing that. Like, it's on you for making him. But in the town of Vulcan, it's more complicated, right? Because we've got this whole thing of the song, I Put a Spell on You. And I feel like these people are not totally in charge of themselves. 
Yeah, like, so I guess it's like the people who originally created Vulcan are maybe somewhat responsible for him, but the people who are now currently worshipping him are not because they didn't make him and they're not responsible for him being the way he is. They are under his spell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That does kind of complicate things a little bit. I think it complicates it in a cool way, though, and I think it does it in a way that feels intentional to me. I don't think that anybody in the writer's room is like talking about these ideas necessarily in the terms that that we are, but I think they are aware of kind of the moral landscape that they're working in. When you look at this more metaphorically, I feel like it's kind of when you're born into America and there are already all these systems at play, this kind of like racist, misogynist culture that you're not really responsible for in terms of like, you didn't make this happen. The people who did are dead and gone and you just grew up in this society. This is in this also has like the added layer of kind of a, a corporate culture that is more interested in its own profit than in the community's well-being or any individual person's well-being. And those systems are all already at play in our society, right, on a certain level. And I feel like the show is acknowledging that and working it into the metaphor of the gods and belief that you can participate in a broken, immoral system and not be totally in charge, like, morally of that. Like, like we both have a job, right, where we make money and participate in the economy and we pay taxes, but we might not be happy about how the economy operates or what those taxes go towards, but we have to eat. You know, we need a job. We we don't have a choice about that. This is just the system that we're in. You kind of see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely do. I'm just not sure if I have anything to add to it, but I think it's a really good point. So I'm like convincing you that this is here <laughs> and um, I'm not making it up. I mean, you've convinced me that it's an interesting thing to think about it, not necessarily that the writers themselves are thinking about it. Okay, I'll keep working on it and we'll see if I convince you. Okay, we have not talked about the road trip, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's the best. The whole thing makes me so happy. And when Salim showed up, I was so surprised. I know, me too. I had no idea we would see him again. You think he's just like a prologue one-off character. And I was like, oh my God. Like I saw the, I saw the cab and I was like, it's too, I can't hope for this. Like it (laughs) it will break my heart if it's not true. And then he showed up and I was like, ah, I didn't even notice the cab. So you were way more on top of that than I was. Oh, it's like, why is a New York cab like wherever they're at? But okay. So Salim shows up, right? And then we get this whole thing in the cab, like when they're, on like a authentic American road trip where they're talking about fuck those assholes. And I feel like that's the anthem of that B story is fuck those assholes. Cause it just <laughs> like, they just pass it around between the three of them and uh, they, they, each one of them does a thing about it. And I loved it. I just thought it was so cool. Oh, I think I missed that. I need to go back. I, so I noticed it when they were talking about it in the bar, mm-hmm. but I didn't, they start off talking about that in the cab. Yeah, yeah. It's like um, what, whatever they're, yeah, they're talking about like where they're going to go. And then Laura kind of spills the beans about Jesus. And and then Sweeney's like, whoa, hey, shut up. And he, he calls her a leprechaun. And then she grabs his lips oh, and like yeah, smashes yeah. his face. I did love the way the camera kept focusing on Salim's face when they were in the bar at the end and sort of like, Salim looking back and forth between oh yeah yeah Laura yeah, yeah and Sweeney <laughs> yep you could tell they ha- they have a lot of chemistry together as a thruple yeah he's watching the tennis match I really like that scene too because they're almost like on a scale right where Salim's like fully human and then you have Sweeney's like fully a god and then she's kind of somewhere in the middle she's like this weird thing yeah and that the like fuck those assholes has kind of multiple meanings in the context of their conversation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And for each of them. Yeah, actually, that's so funny. That reminds me, 
because it's the end of May and all of the college graduations are happening. There's a, a commencement speech that's been making the rounds by Kumail Nanjiani. He's a, a Pakistani immigrant actor who's in Silicon Valley talking about his immigrant experience um, and like coming to the U.S. for college. And uh, at one point in the speech, he says, fuck an immigrant. They really <laughs> need it. It's been kind of a downtime for us. Uh, <laughs> And he got a little bit of flack for that, but yeah, he was like, everybody wants to fuck immigrants, it's just in different ways. <laughs> like, let's do it in a good way. <laughs> yeah, I totally. guess we can link to that in the show notes if people are interested, it's pretty good and, and yeah. relevant to the show's thematic topics. It was a great speech. You you shared it with me. I really appreciated it because I live in Iowa and uh, he was given the speech in Iowa and it warmed my heart. You know, usually when people in the media talk about the Midwest, it's only to slam us and to say like, we don't get it. A lot like the people who live in the town of Vulcan, like that's usually how Midwesterners are portrayed. And it really warmed my heart to hear Kumail talking about like, that's not the America that I know from being in Iowa, like people were good to me here. And yeah, you guys need to listen to that speech. It's besides being like really poignant and moving, it was hilarious. Like the yeah. whole thing is so fun. I wasn't like laugh crying in the way that people typically mean like laughing so hard that you cry. I was like actually just alternating back and forth between genuine laughter and genuine crying. Yeah, me too. So now it's time to highlight one way that the show surpassed the book and I think maybe give up on the notion that we can meaningfully talk about how the show failed to live up to the book, because it's not even really trying to at this point. Um, so just any general disappointment that you might have with the show. Yeah, my my biggest disappointment is linked right back to the previous episode. I was kind of vague about this last time because I didn't want to spoil anything from the book, but clearly the chair last episode was a reference to the character Mr. Wood from the book. He gets name dropped in this episode. Mr. Wood is one of the like government secret agent people in the book. The fact that his name is Mr. Wood has nothing to do with actual wood. The whole point of it is that the new gods have no imagination and live in a world of cliche. They literally just name th like, you're Mr. Town, you're Mr. Wood, you're Mr. Stone. It's like they saw something and were like, you're Mr. Coke can. Like they just can't think. <laughs> That's the point of like the whole thing is, is that they're intellectually bankrupt and that the idea of conspiracy theories is stupid. <laughs> like, that's the point of Mr. Wood. And so to have it turn into like this mythological creature is weird. And I feel like it, it misses the point in a way that I that makes me mad. And I don't like the the only upside that I can possibly see to this entire thing, because I don't think we're done with Mr. Wood, is that I think we might get the return of Tracy Toms via Mr. Wood. Oh, I would be into that. I'm predicting that. And it would, it might be worth it because she was really good. <laughs> but that's the only way that this gets redeemed. It seems like when they were adapting the book, they were like, there's a character named Mr. Wood. And there's also like a tree as important symbolism. We'll just make them the same thing. Yeah. It's but not it's like there's not actually good resonance between those two ideas. No, there's not. <laughs> it's crazy. What about you? What pissed you off this time? <laughs> Uh, I think I like this episode more than you. Or I guess because I don't know the book as well, that didn't piss me off as much. Um, sure. No, I loved everything about this episode. If I had to pick something, I guess it would just be kind of like we already discussed, Shadow's continued disbelief. Like, sure, have an emotional reaction to your wife being back. That's great. But to keep hitting the same note about not understanding how this world works and that gods are real and that people can come back from the dead. It's just like, get on with it, please. Yeah. Let's move to the next. Yeah. So what's your biggest improvement? Oh, we talked about it a little bit. I think the road trip was such a surprise and was really great. I really liked it. Like by the end, it feels like Salim and Laura are really kind of tight and you have Sweeney over there like standing apart 
and he's just getting more and more like ostracized and he's getting more and more pissed as this whole thing goes on. So I, I just really loved the motion of the plot with those three. I thought it was great. What about you? So I already talked about the thematic cohesion and the episode structure. So I guess, yeah, so I guess I'll say that I really liked the inclusion of Jesus and how he really brings a different perspective to the idea of sacrifice and what that means and how, yeah, sacrifice just means something really different to Jesus than it does to the other gods that we've met. And I guess to hit on a couple specific things about the production, we talked about sort of the supernatural glowy shit that happens uh, in Laura's heart and when she's looking at Shadow and in Shadow's eyelid. Mm -hmm. I really loved in the prologue how you see this light start to come up behind Jesus and you think that it is just like a supernatural glow or something. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out it's the car headlights. That sort of transition and visual fake out I thought was actually awesome. Yeah. And then my favorite musical thing in this episode was after they shoot all the guns and Shadow sort of like looking up at the sky and then you see the image of all of the bullets start to slow down and then come back down and fall to the earth. There's just like a perfect musical onomatopoeia for like the what's happening to the velocity of the bullets that I thought was really cool. Oh. Well, that wraps us up for this episode. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at ChipperAllen. You can follow the show on Twitter at ShadowShambler, and visit our website at ShadowsAndShamblers.com for news and episode reviews. If you'd like to leave us feedback, if you're having a fucking anxiety attack because you're genuinely terrified that we are never going to shut the fuck up, you can visit <laughs> shadowsandchamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Come join us next week for episode seven, A Prayer for Mad Sweeney, and use the hashtag shamblers to live tweet with us on Sunday night. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. That's the best way for us to get new listeners. Because we're not the oppressors. We're gravity. We're the tide. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. <laughs>